Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're good. Um, I'm not feeling yet brave enough to consistently use the intro videos and music yet because we've had a few glitches recently, including I think Leanne had some problems yesterday doing her guest hosted show. But thanks again to Leanne for hosting uh, on every second Tuesday of every month. Uh, she's bringing you all sorts of goodies uh, at the moment, and I know she's got more planned, so thanks to her. Uh, but yeah, we're just not braving the intro music, which blares out into your ears anyway, and many of you complain anyway, so we're going all gentle, and I'm, I'm coming in as this uh, instead. Now, today we've got a great show planned. Uh, ben Wilkins is joining me for what is now a monthly feature. Uh, he, my favorite thinker in the direction of MSK public health. I mean, public health generally is a, a true oracle, but also with that MSK background, he can really help to translate it for, for us lot. Um, and so he's joining me, but also I've got Andrew Power, who's from Swim England. And uh, we've got some great news in that direction, which really nicely follows on from last month's episode. So this is our public health newscast um, once a month. Um, we're going to be doing uh, topics like this, which are really important to bring forward. Um, thanks as ever for those of you participating in, through the weeks in the chat. Don't be shy to join in. I know what you like when we've got guests on, especially new ones. You keep it quiet till the end. So please bring your questions forward uh, and get them in the chat, regardless of where it is you're listening to this. Um, and we will endeavor to get to those. And if we don't, then they will no doubt set the scene for future episodes of this kind. So without further ado, let's see if I can bring in Andrew and Ben. Can you hear me, gents? Happening, Jack? Look at that. It's obscuring my face. That's terrible, although the audience would probably prefer that. Let's let's just hide my little frame there for a second. Let's uh, make some adjustments. Um, right. So I want to get stuck straight in then. Ben, you've made some great suggestions as ever and, and an esteemed guest that you've brought along. Uh, but what, what uh, I want to always ask is, what are we uh, starting with and why? That's the why question is important. Uh, so what we're starting with today, so we're going to look at social prescribing um, because it's uh, Social Prescribing Day on the 12th of March uh, and it's International Social Prescribing Day on the 18th of March. And it completely links into what we talked about uh, last month about uh, how are we going to deal with the backlog of MSK patients and challenges uh, in the wake of COVID and how we to look at community and also with Sport England's new strategy focusing on health and well-being. Uh, how social prescriber is a great connection with that and Swim England's on the call as well, um, fronted by Andrew today to kind of bring forward one of the national governing bodies of sport to see what they're doing to align with both Sport England's new strategy around health and well-being and how that links into social prescribing. Fantastic. No, that should flow really nicely. Andrew, could you just introduce yourself to, for the listeners, uh, for those that don't know your work? Yeah, sure. Andrew Power. Um, so I'm the, I'm a water well-being specialist at, at Swim England. Um, so I'm part of um, you know the overall organisation at Swim England who, who are responsible for swimming, diving, artistic swimming, um, water polo even. Um, but we have a, a real broad vision around encouraging and getting a nation swimming and, and involved in in water and when i when i say swimming i, I refer to aquatic activity at the right. same time in the same breath sure. we tend to use swimming as the catch-all so just so mm. being in water right you know, but that aquatic activity i like that's good um ben so i think one of the things that we hear banded around a lot as jargon sometimes is social prescribing and i'm not saying that that's therefore inherently a, a bad thing that it's banded around i think it's good it's become more part of the vernacular but also sometimes that because these things can sometimes become a buzzword that aren't always understood so what is social prescribing and how does that apply within msk yeah so social prescribing uh, is part of the NHS long-term plan and what social prescribing is is looking at 
how the activities that are offered within the community uh, can be linked to patients that will benefit from them. So what the social prescribing model looks like is where health professionals, um, whether it's GPs, physios, will refer patients into the community to see a, a link worker or a social prescriber and to have the time to ask the questions such as what matters and what matters to me and, and, and my health condition. And so it's that time for, for an individual to focus what are the opportunities in the local community that will be beneficial to them, whether that's things such as uh, walking groups, um, coffee meetup spaces, uh, swimming, uh, exercise, uh, gardening. There's all sorts available that we know have a positive therapeutic impact on people and part of their own self-management, but it's about having that support to navigate the opportunities that are right for that individual. Mm. No, it's, it's interesting. And with regards to social prescribing, both in terms of its broad concepts, Andrew, but also its um, application within, say, swimming. That's something that is a classic one whereby we would try to indicate that people should be engaging with these things, not necessarily as a specific medicine, but instead as an, an intervention that's more more broad. Is that something that Swim England are involved in and aware of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've worked for the last couple of years. We've we've worked on developing system wide approaches to supporting people to to use water and to use our, our pools and open spaces as well. We're responsible for open water swimming, um, as well. Um, so we've we've done a lot of work in terms of looking at the individual pathways. Um, you know, we've worked with Good Boost and, and, and with Ben in terms of that being an individual pathway for people mm -hmm. to follow specific to MSK um, issues as well. But we've have existing pathways already in place, like the Learn to Swim program, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, how do people access Learn to Swim programs, particularly if they may have other barriers and limitations? Um, so we've worked for a number of years in terms of developing a model and a, and a systems sort of approach, a pathway to get people um, to the point where they can succeed um, and, and, and really achieve what they need to achieve in terms of outcomes via a number of different different approaches and that could that could be inclusivity and access you know that could be issues around access to to pool spaces and um, there could be professional perceptions or misconceptions that 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 cause that that end up being a barrier as well um and then just programming and and opportunity you know pathways that need to exist so, mm -hmm. to facilitate and allow that journey to to complete and get people into the pools of course. And now one of the things on, on that you've just reminded me of, I've been thinking about for a while, is that accessibility is an interesting one with how that plays with open water, uh, because I've, I feel like that has proliferated in recent years. And I don't know if that's me attending to that more or whether that, that is the case. I mean, I'm sure I'm not going to ask you to suddenly pull the data uh, um, without uh, without me having prompted it before it. But I'm just wondering, is that the case? Has it proliferated? And if so, does that improve I can imagine reasons why it would improve access, but also that there's a different barrier to entry in terms of people being worried about the cold, you know, relative to pools. And so I just wondered how that's played out with you guys. Well, absolutely. I, I think open open water swimming as well and, and just access to open water has definitely soared and particularly during the pandemic as well. Sure. But not just during the pandemic. Prior to that, I think there was there's always a bit of a trade off in terms of participation figures around swimming. 
um, and where where those individuals are actually participating in terms of data that we get from Sport England, Active Live Survey data and, and, and other data sources as well. So I think it's somewhere in the region of 2.25 million people who've accessed, you know, open water. But that could be on holiday. It might not necessarily be a weekly occurrence. It might be something that happens less frequent than that. Um, but there's a significant chunk of the population who are... Mm access and open water and also i think there's there's probably a bit of an overlap between that and um, between those numbers who also use pools as well and um, mm. sw swimming outdoors but swimming open water but also swimming outdoor pools or indoor pools and sort of mix it up it's a great point I, I, ben one of the things i think we probably benefit from being a bit more confident with as msk professionals is probably as we're broaching this social prescribing role and, and recognizing that as being beneficial I feel like I can recognize that I'd probably err on the side of caution and be recommending pool swimming uh, and the like ra rather than open water. We're not particularly coastal where I'm at now, but that's certainly another variable again, isn't it, with regards to that? So I suppose that's where the right parameters being put around these things is going to only improve professional confidence uh, and, and also knowledge of, of the safety parameters around that and what support is available for Swim England and others is only going to help in that direction. Definitely. And uh, that's the role of social prescribers and link workers to identify what is the right opportunity and for social prescribers to be updated and informed by national and governing bodies like Swim England, what's the guidance for different health conditions and what's recommended for their local area in terms of indoors or potentially outdoors if it's appropriate. Um, but it's, it's the, the social prescriber, that, that those link workers are utterly key to the success of the social prescribing program because it's designing something around them. It's not just there's a message board and there's a load of leaflets and there's pick and mix to hope that someone picks the right one for them. It's having the time with, a, with, a, with, with that social prescriber to make sure it's right for them, right for their condition. If it's something they'll enjoy because we know from behaviour change, there's no point giving someone a GP referral program to go into a leisure centre when it's not something they want to do anyway, when actually they'd be better off gardening and a tiny bit of digging to be active, maybe something they engage with long-term rather than a short-term one-off session. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, let's I, I think the dare to dream and the more people think like this, the more we will be able to prescribe allotments to people. Um, and that will be a, a fun one. Um, now, when it comes to the the disruptions, as we've talked about on other shows, Ben, and we've obviously uh, covered in various different angles on this show uh, without you, is the COVID situation has been so disruptive, but it's also meant that the ability, you know, we've kind of just as we'd started to decentralize a little bit with regards to healthcare, a lot of those avenues literally got cut off, including many that you, you're both involved in. What's been the impact and how can clinicians overcome that? Yeah, so um, so part of my understanding of social prescribing is um, I sit as a trustee on Merton Health Watch. Merton's a borough in southwest London who run one of the first social prescribing programmes. And so I've been very much seeing what's happening during COVID for the social prescribers, um, a team that's uh, led by Bev and Dr. Mohan Seacombe. Um, got recognised this uh, last year for but winning awards as well, but it, they've completely shifted, of course, to a, a lot of like a lot of clinicians into telehealth support with social prescriber. What digital options are available for people when it hasn't been possible for people to attend in-person support, in-person classes? So, social prescription still going on is adapted like every clinician to the pandemic. But but you're right, Jack. I think. Uh, be, because of the challenges that health is facing and particularly things like MSK, mental health and the, the, the prevalence 
of people who are dealing with this is far greater than the number of clinicians to solve the problem. Um, social prescribing is placed in the perfect position. There is a chance, just like all other NHS services, that there is too much of a challenge for it to deal with it successfully. Um, there's no doubt, but adding additional options into the in, into the mix means that there's a better chance of us supporting more people um, to return back to health and well-being than it would have been without social prescribing. Of course. Now, for those that um, are, um, I'm going to bring uh, the audience in where possible to say, what do you know of social prescribing and what engagement have you had with it so far? Is it something that you want it to see in, in your future? Because that comes to my next question. Just come in as you were going to, Andrew, if you would, but to also if you can touch on the what you feel the future of social prescribing should be. Yeah, and it's just touching on what Ben said there. I mean, the the Sport England strategy has been really, really clear, and and the ambition is is that you know we've got to work, we've got to start to to focus our efforts and 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 target those who are. Um, I think the term was I'm trying to figure out where it, pull it out the sky somewhere, but it was I think those that were most most had the most to gain are least likely to participate. Um, and that's mm. exactly where social prescribing really comes into its own, is that we've got individuals who probably would participate, but there are too many other things, not just lifestyle issues, but societal issues and, and personal mm. issues that they have that, are, that, that act as those barriers that stop them even getting to the thought process of starting to think about going swimming or, or going, you know, or becoming more active. And uh, and I think that's one of the things, you know, that, that the Sport England strategy outlined mm. is is that we've got to be targeting those individuals who who have the most to gain by making those changes who often mm. have the greatest number of barriers as well and that's why they haven't engaged in the past so i mean we've got and i'm gathering case studies at the minute in terms of just providing some examples to the the, the swimming operator um community and, and the workforces out there to to explain sort of the concepts of social prescribing and what that can really mean to individuals and we've got examples of individuals who who just for different reasons, for mental health reasons, you know, just depression, anxiety issues, um, wouldn't make that first step um, to go to the local pool. Um, I think we had one example um, of, a, of a lady who just felt that the biggest barrier to her was that she'd been so inactive for so long um, and she was had issues around you know body conscious issues you know really worried about getting into the pool for the first time and didn't have a costume that you felt was appropriate that you could wear um and the social prescriber went shopping with her um, and and took her through led her through that process that caused her the greatest distress um got the got the the bit of the key bit of equipment that she needed i.e an appropriate swimming costume that she felt comfortable in and she was back into swimming immediately after that. Mm. So, and I've worked in on on health trainer models early career, sort of the development of the health trainer competencies. And what social prescribing's done is say, hey, there's so many other issues here than just diet, nutrition, you know, smoking, physical activity that we need to address in individuals. Um, and let's let's take a, a wider look at that and a broader approach. And, and and I think Sport England strategy, what we're trying to do in Swim England as well, is take that broader outlook on things and look at the other issues that, that are preventing people from doing these things in the first place. Because we've got, we've got a lot of good offers 
at the end of the continuum, you know, there's mm. lots of things available to people to help them. Um, but it's getting them through that door for the first time that's yeah. the biggest, the biggest part. And also getting the, getting the, the partly the new and novel workforce, the social prescribers, to actually be able to help bridge that gap, but also then training an existing workforce to start to engage with that more it's, it's sort of a, a, a balance really and uh, and certainly thanks joe turner who's posted that she loves the idea of prescribing allotments uh, i wonder if that maybe brings me to ask ben what do you think is the future of social prescribing urine uh the future of prescribing is exactly what andrew said is that the barriers that currently exist so people don't start thinking about it aren't aware of it went to the first step engaging are removed um so many of the solutions as andrew rightly says are already out there the options are there the classes are there the groups are there the sessions are there it's just that first step is really scary particularly if it's your first time going into a ledger center it's your first time seeing a swimming pool since you were at school um it's the first time that maybe you've been outside and because you've been so isolated for weeks to months and actually having those first um conversations just the kind of how what's the weather like and how are you doing is incredibly scary um i think we forget that at school it's completely normal for us to have loads of conversations with lots of different people every single day at work that's a very normal thing if you're out of work or you're retired or anything like that that isn't normal and actually we get out of practice so the future of social prescribing is overcoming those barriers so that people can access these options um confidently regular regularly um and the future beyond that is as the UK, we've been one of the leads in social prescribing and kind of countries as well like the Netherlands have taken it up, but um, the NHS, um, World Health Innovation Summit, uh, the UN, they're now putting together the Global Social Prescribing Alliance to take the learnings, to take what's done really well and to share that and scale that uh, internationally. Um, so I think the future is that this becomes something that's blueprint and standardised globally as well. Yeah, I think that that's that's exciting for me, especially as the world opens back up and we're all craving social activity. The fact that then as well, it coincides with an agenda of which we want to try to understand how to appropriately decentralize uh, medicine, not just for the other benefits that we've known for years, but also the contagion risks that can occur for COVID and other uh, pathogens, you know, realizing that it's probably there is infrastructure, community-based infrastructure and social prescribing networks that would stand us in better stead uh, if God forbid this happens again or equivalent or worse. Um, Joe Turner's asked, is there a kind of process in place to help people overcome these barriers or those barriers described? I think it's, it's, it's the social prescribers. They go through a huge amount of training um, and development to become a social prescriber or a link worker in the first place. Um, uh, motivational interviewing, um, uh, kind of how, 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 to, how to implement behavior change strategies, all these things. Um, and that's the process. Uh, there is a there is a step by step. The, the 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 greatest part for social prescribers is they have that bit of extra time. They can have those conversations. They can think about approaching a problem in ways that a frontline clinician just never could because time pressures are so limited. Um, as as Andrew gave the example of going shopping with someone to find a swimming costume that was right to give them that support into the next. So that's the process. It's, it's understanding about what that motivational interviewing is and what is the true problem. It's not that that person didn't want to go swimming. It was a self-consciousness and not finding the right. Yeah, yeah. And so as clinicians, we go, well, you just don't want to be physically active. Um, well, no, the problem <laughs> is actually a sidestep to that to get you towards being physically yeah, active. Yeah, non-compliance non <laughs> gets marked up on the notes, doesn't it? Now, I want to get stuck in, especially while we've got you here, Andrew, get stuck into to the Swim England stuff in a little more detail. 
in the last show me and Ben did together, we talked about um, Sport England's new strategies. How is Swim England stepping up to that new uh, new plate? Yeah, I mean, as 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 I've explained, we've already been doing significant work for the last few years. I mean, we started off with um, some some exploratory work, um, so probably going back four or five years now in terms of in terms of GP referral and swimming and and the opportunities that existed there. We did um, we delivered a program around dementia friendly swimming. Um, as well, which was a which is a bit of a game changer in terms of giving direction for the future and how mm-hmm. how we make um, swimming more appropriate and accessible for people with health conditions. Um, so that had a pure focus on dementia, but we learned an awful lot from that mm-hmm. uh, that we've been able to apply into our current model, which is the water wellbeing model, um, and that program. Drew on a lot of the insight and, and research that we've done over the years. We um, deliver, commissioned a bit of work in 2017, the health and wellbeing benefits of swimming report, um, and that was essentially a, a review of, of, of the evidence, uh, the available evidence. A number of institutions: Nottingham University, King's College London. Um, Wolverhampton, Loughborough, Brunel universities all led on a specific theme within that report. Right. Uh, we looked at the physical health benefits, the well-being benefits, the, the physiological benefits, um, benefits to communities, um, public health as well. Um, and each of the sections in there, I believe also we focused on swimming as a as a sport and the health and well-being benefits that come from sport alone and participation in competitive sport and the economic evidence as well, um, which led to 2019, we did a bit of work called, um, called the Value of Swimming report. It had a ministerial launch and that was very much building on that evidence that we had to date, but actually being able to quantify some of the impacts um, in terms of the healthcare savings to healthcare to the NHS, social care um, and so on, the significant benefit and impact that swimming can have. Um, so we've kind of built on that evidence and built layer upon layer to the point where we are today. Where we have a, a multi-component model um, which looks at things from I use the term a lot, sort of car park to pool. Um, so it's not about just what happens in the facilities, but what happens not just even in the car park, but what happens before that. And we know that salience is, a, is an issue with healthcare professionals. Right. Um, and I can understand that. I've worked in primary care settings and secondary care settings early in career as well. And we have a lot on our plates. We have a lot to think about. Um, when we're working with individuals, you're working with a patient and, and everything that needs to be addressed with that individual. Um, and then in addition to that, we've got to think about what do we do after this process and what do they do next? And and I think that's where social prescribing helps and supports professionals to be able to um, to, to to dig deeper into, into individuals' thinking in terms of what the, what the real barriers are to them. Why is it that they're saying that they can't um, be active or they can't go swimming and what are the reasons behind that um, so yes we've, we've done a lot of work to this point in terms of which is in support of that strategy I think Sport England have talked about systems wide approaches um, and that it is just more about you know it's more about what we offer on that you know flashy campaign or, 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 or sort mm. of 
glossy leaflet or flyer or or membership information for our facility it's more about that and more about getting into the mindset of of individuals but also the professionals as well um, and we're doing a bit of work in terms of health education as well and just raising awareness and that salience around swimming as an activity um probably due to lockdown we probably suffered a little bit in terms of the 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 the, low, the availability of facilities obviously not being open um, mm. and so not being available as much as walking would be or cycling or running or other forms of activity would be readily available to people i think what we've got a bit of work to do now is to remind people that pools are about to open here um, and there are some real benefits and, and to to getting people into the water they mm. can't be had on land in some yeah. cases as well. So. Definitely. No, it's, in it's interesting. And I think as well, there's, there's so many... The, the swimming as a social phenomenon is, is is very interesting because of the way in which, especially in this country, people have, have, have sometimes had to engage with it through school. And therefore, sometimes it can be a real marmite of an activity. Uh, whereas as people get older, they come to realise that the, the... I mean, the benefits, of course, are lifelong, but so, sometimes that can uh, change even the most ardent sceptic's mind um, as they start to recognize its health benefits, especially in the MSK game. We've got a couple of comments coming. I just want to uh, read out. Thank you for the participation from Nick and from Paula. Local experience, inviting a link worker to come and talk to your MSK team is useful to build relationships and understanding of each other's roles. Absolutely. As ever, you know, the, these these barriers fall away uh, when we make those make those leaps and, and just invite that conversation. You know, stop making assumptions and start asking the questions. Paula Clayton's then added to that and said, informed facilitator can not only help team members understand the individual roles, but also how to optimize those relationships to maximize best practice. Absolutely agree. And I think that that's something that as, as the world opens up, I know I keep saying this, but these are, we've got to try and make these landmark moments, these watershed moments whereby we take the opportunities as well as the challenges that have come from the pandemic and use the opening up as a true opening up of, of new ways of working. I know it's been said over and over, but that, you know, what, what are, our new version of the new normal can be in this social prescribing space. It's going to be up to up to us as professionals to to reach out, provide those links, provide those opportunities, and start to you know bridge those gaps that have occurred otherwise. Um, I want to ask because obviously we're predominantly NMSK audience on on this show and beyond. Andrew, what what can the pools do for MSK specifically? Oh, I mean. <laughs> I mean, Ben's probably, you know, in terms of his background, is probably better qualified to say than me from a from an evidence point of view. But um, but I know there's, there's really strong and, and promising evidence in terms of just the, I guess the the specific benefits to MSK and osteoarthritis and other conditions as well, and um, that can be had by getting in the water. And I think the water has some really specific um specific benefits in terms of you know physiological benefits you know the buoyancy of water being able to you know the resistance of water even hydrostatic pressure can be a real positive thing in terms of people's physiology and how they react so so i think it is um it is there are some really unique aspects and just going back to those case studies again you know i think um there's some examples uh, you may have seen the we are undefeatables campaign as well and mm. um, we've had some campaigns around uh, it specifically the swim england have, have, have led on um uh, an operator campaign around the around love swimming the hashtag love swimming campaign and there's been some really important examples in there in terms of people who 
with arthritis, with other conditions who where weight bearing activity just isn't an option um, or it isn't possible or it is just too uncomfortable and too painful to perform. And and so there's a real specific, there's some real obvious target groups um, mm. The intuitive benefits, you know, a lot of people will understand and, and think, well, yeah, it just makes sense that certain individuals would benefit from water more than exercising on land or exercising at home, whatever that might be. But I think also it's not just about, you know, the modality and the the chemistry of water or whatever you want to call it. It's not just the environment itself, but it's actually, you know, for those who are, who are isolated, you know, uh, and so on, being able to to leave the home, to be able to go somewhere um, and and perform a positive activity yeah. like swimming, um, there's a whole load of social benefits that come with that as well, and community benefits that, that come from from people being out in the communities and engaging in those types of things. Mm. They're not just health and well-being specific. There's there's a lot more to it. Absolutely. Paul has said the ability to offload someone in water gives so much confidence and they can, that they can see and feel and the ability for them to, to, you know, even just range of movement and strength benefits that they hadn't really noticed and exposing them to that opportunity is, is massive. Now, one of the reasons I went to you first, Andrew, rather than Ben, is mainly because it would take a three-hour podcast for me and Ben to get stuck into that. You know, this is this is Mr. Mr. Good Boost and someone that could lend his hand to various different things and we're fortunate that he's chosen to pursue this thoroughly. Um, go on, Andrew. Sorry, you were going to say? I think I mentioned the intuitive benefits and I think people understand for some reason, for whatever reason that is, and it might not even be from past experience, right. um, but our insight suggests that even, you know, one in three people with a health condition or disability, um, long-term health condition or, or, or impairment would would prefer water and would prefer to to opt for swimming as opposed to other activities. Um, and that's that's significant data set in terms of the insight that we've gathered over the years so we know that people with health conditions would lean towards water as a as a modality um for whatever mm. reason that might be it might be childhood experiences it might be more recent um they may have been swimmers but they may not have but it, there's just something intuitive about water that it's mm. it's a supportive environment compared to other environments as well so. mm. And sometimes the vulnerability you feel where the last thing you want sometimes when you soar is something fast moving. And sometimes to some extent, there's something to be said about the supportive nature and comfort that comes from the hug that water can give in the right context. Now, Ben, um, we're out of time, unfortunately, mate, but uh, give us your elevator pitch to MSK professionals as to why they should be considering uh, aquatic therapy, let's say, or just generally making sure that they get in touch with their facilities as things uh, open back up. Yeah, uh, from all the evidence, it shows that for, as a form of rehab compared to land, it is as, and in many cases, more effective for a lot of MSK conditions. But ultimately, it's, it's like Andrew said, for a huge number of people, being in water is low impact, low pain in a way. Uh, I think my internet is my internet still there. Oh, no, we got you. Oh, boy, froze At least there. audio is uh, good, yeah. Uh, it's low, low impact, low pain. And so the most, the critical thing for anyone of a health condition is that they find an activity they feel they can take part in. For a lot of people, being in water is something they can do where they couldn't do it on land. Mm, absolutely. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. And Paula, you're a swine. I told you, don't go all the great questions out as we're out of time. That's what I begged of you at the start. Um, but you're making some lovely points and some good questions, which will no doubt then inspire our future shows. So thank you for your participation, even though I just called you a swine. 
join in tomorrow. Um, now, I'm gonna I'm just going to wrap up on this. I feel like one of the things I'm really looking forward to when I think about the future of this and, and future conversation, perhaps in this direction, thank you so much, Andrew, for, for joining us. But I know as a professional, there's been times that there's been barriers to entry for me to sometimes be the perfect person that could then you know, for want of a better term, metaphorically hold a patient's hand to take them to the pool, to work with them on that, to bridge the gap between their, their uh, or to, to extend into self-management, their rehabilitation. And sometimes the various different, you know, it varies, of course, from facility to facility, but it definitely is something that, 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 that has been a barrier for me to be able to do. And sometimes I've therefore needed to hand that over to sometimes, uh, you know, even with the best will in the world, a plucky lifeguard then trying to, to help someone out there and it's and it's therefore broken down and unfortunately that patient's then ended up bouncing back into us and we're, we're struggling to make that bridge is that something you know i i, I know it's a tough thing for me to wrap up on but it's just something that i hope we can have future conversations as to how we can further uh, bridge that gap and work with you potentially to try and make sure that that accessibility is is very thorough yeah i mean we, we we've done some work with activity alliance as well recently in terms of in terms of developing um some of the some of the softer skills of of professionals in in facilities as well so one of the 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 projects that we focused on with um in terms of access to to facilities to pools um really emphasized that element in terms of inclusive customer experience um training and awareness in in the whole facility team so that it wasn't just you know individuals you know whether it was the swim teacher or the swim coordinator mm. it wasn't just them who who benefited from having all the knowledge and and yeah. understanding and being able to empathize with individuals it's you know we've emphasized that it needs to be reception staff it needs to be everybody in, involved in the running of that facility needs to understand and being able to put themselves in in the shoes of someone with a health condition what they might be facing what barriers they might they might have um the nervousness that they feel as they step through the door for the first time um, and being able to understand that so yeah we're working on that in terms of and there's other work going on that's that sport england a commission and uk coaching as well in terms of the softer skills that are required to be able to facilitate entry and, and support people Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, gents. Really appreciate it. Now, I'm going to be brave and I'm going to actually try and play one of the videos and see if it works, because if it doesn't, then we've done the show anyway. But uh, join me tomorrow. I'm with Dr. Ellie Summers. She's going to be doing uh, one of our three shows this week, which is uh, in and around International Women's Day. She's going to be talking about women participation in sports and exercise medicine and roles in elite sport. Uh, so for, for now, though, that's enough from us. Thanks a lot. And I'll speak again soon.